The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717, uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class and uh, see you. <laughs> Generally, I guess I'll say rather implicit memory. Um, a lot of the stuff we we've been talking about has been implicit. This, this is the best place to talk about all sort of implicit phenomena as well as just procedural memory. So this is different from the stuff I talked about just the other day, which was memory for facts, right? How we represent concepts. So this is questions like, how do you read? We were all taught to read, and we remember learning to read, right? Our first language, that's something we remember, you remember sounding out words, all that stuff. You probably don't remember learning that, you know, this makes a duh sound, but you probably did learn that. Now, if you've learned a second language recently, um, you probably do remember learning those kinds of things. Right? And if you aren't really proficient yet at reading a second language, you notice things you, when, you, when you do read that you probably did when you were little. Right? So you probably read out loud, for example. Right? Oftentimes when I'm reading French, I read it out loud. I, I've been speaking French since I was proficiently since I was about 23. But, which coincidentally is when I met my Francophone girlfriend, now wife. But it's also the case that when I read things, um, I read them out loud a lot of times, or I click Google Translate, which doesn't usually do a very good job. So, but when you're reading your first language, I, I, I don't know. I literally don't know how you would do this. How do you do math? How do you do math? How do you do arithmetic? Eventually, with some mathematical things, it could get to the point where, yeah, you just, it's, it's automatic. But five and four is nine. And that's a fact about the world. But also, if I give you 12 times 13, you can say, well, 12 times 12 is 144. So you know that. And then you'd work out the next bit. Add another, another 12 to 144. So add up to 6. Now, if I give you something like 72 times 49, you might have to write it down. But you can carry the ones and all that fun stuff. That's easy to do. You can all do that. That's not hard. But how do we do it? How does a hockey player, how does a goalie stop a puck? And I don't mean a pickup game. No, it could be. I mean someone who's pretty proficient at it. This has to be memory because there is learning involved and you can't do it and I can't do it. And it's not just because I can't see that well that I can't. I did play goalie playing ball hockey like when I was in graduate school, and it was fun because you'd make a save and then say, by the way, I'm legally blind to the opposing player. Like a good glove save. Wait, what? The guy screwed up the rest of the game. Bruins beat the tragedy hit. One of my friends says he played, they played right next to him. He called them the Russians. They apparently took it way too seriously for ball hockey. My sporting career highlight. Speaking of highlights, I, will I want to show you something that's amazing. I was just doing this from the computer. Computer. Hello, computer. I think I've got the right one here. Yeah. Okay. If it loads, there it is. Okay. Oh, good. There's not going to be an ad. Oh, there is an ad. Well, that's grand. And there's also sound. Just close enough that the... Okay, watch, watch this. Did you 
can't even see how quick that is. And Alex Ovechkin can shoot a puck pretty fast. And watch, when you watch the replay, <laughs> that's bizarre that any human can do that. Though I'm not entirely convinced Carey Price is human. I think he actually may be some kind of alien. But he had to remember how to do this. He had to represent, think about this, he has to represent a whole lot of things in his memory. He has to represent where everybody is on the ice. He has to represent that that guy's probably going to shoot because he's number eight from Washington and he's the most prolific goal scorer of the last 20 years. And he also has to be able to guess how he has to move to do what the hell he did there. It is memory. He has learned to become a goaltender, and, and the learning has persisted. I can't find a video of the thing I really wanted to show you, so that's why I went with this, but there was a, a time in, I think it was 1981 or 82, when Wayne Gretzky scored a goal against Calgary, and Rick Wamsley was, I think, Calgary's goalie, and Gretzky's coming in on the left wing, and he's coming down, and Wamsley's like this, crouched down, and the only thing you can, that, that he can't see the net over here because he's come out a little bit, he shoots the puck, and in midair, it turns, and goes right by his shoulder and into the net. And after the game, Gretzky was asked, how did, how did you do that? And he said, well, that's all he gave me. Oh, okay. My, my brother's a musical prodigy, right? He's playing since he was little. He can play any instrument. He's one of those guys. And when I ask him, how do you play any instrument that you've never played before? I've seen him pick up a flute, a violin, a trombone. But he's, he's, he's original, originally a guitar player. But he can, I stopped playing bass when he picked my bass up one day, and he was better than me. He'd never played bass before. So, well, I guess I'll just stick to school. And he actually said to me, Somewhat condescendingly, of course, because he's my brother. I don't know, how can't you? <laughs> it's an amazing skill, but that's a mem that, that is memory. That is procedural memory. That is knowing how to do something. That is, you practice at it, you get better. Persistence of learning, that's memory. So th these are really neat kind of questions, but they're pretty hard to study in a lab. And a lot of times I know, for example, professional athletes a lot of times don't want to know how they do things. They don't want to know those secrets. Uh, I went to a talk uh, at, jeez, uh, years ago. It's a guy from York who studied perception and memory, and he was studying uh, cricket bowlers, like world-class cricket bowlers. And because he knew one school with him or something. He then had an in with the other guys and it was okay. And he, I, I asked the question, do you ever try to talk to NHL goaltenders? He said, yes, I have. They will not speak to you. You're not going to talk to them. And it's because they don't want to know how they do things because they're superstitious. So it's an amazing thing. And these are hard things to study. People do study reading. People do study arithmetic. People do study these uh, sort of physical tasks like Lansdowns and stuff like that. But it's a hard thing to do. So some properties of memories like this. This memory is implicit. Unlike explicit memory, explicit memory is like you have to bring it into, and I hate the word consciousness, but I'm going to use it. You have to bring something into consciousness. So when I ask you, what did you have for breakfast, you can remember what you ate. So explicit memory is like that. Implicit memory is knowing that breakfast is just breakfast. Or knowing how to read. Okay. We know it's memory because it, we get better at things with practice. So if we get better at things with practice, memory is involved. Right? Definitionally. Yet we it's not accessible to consciousness. And in fact, a lot of times when you ask people questions about how they do certain skills, for example, they, they, they're wrong. Right? I've used this example before.
before, uh, but when you ask people how to turn on a bicycle, they don't know, typically. And this includes elite cyclists. You actually don't turn just by turning your handlebars. That makes you fall over. You turn by leaning and turning a little bit the opposite way and then turning really quickly. And that's why when we teach kids to ride bikes, we kids end up falling. They always fall when they turn. Because you say, just turn your handlebars. No, that's not good. You're going to make your five-year-old fall off their bicycle. Or your 16-year-old when I taught John to ride a bike. So it's not accessible to consciousness. And the things that are... A lot of times we sort of reason them out and we're wrong about how it works. So we don't know how we do something, but we do something and we can get better at it. Example of playing video games. Um, this is one of those things where you think to yourself, I don't know how. Yeah, have you ever actually had a friend come over to your house and you play video games and they want to play with you and you say, okay, great, here's a controller, and they say to you, let's say you're playing. Well, Battlefield's an example, but I don't usually play split screen, so thinking about maybe hockey, playing NHL or something like that, and they say to me, how do you pass? And I say, I don't know. I actually have to look down at the controller and say, oh, right trigger. Like, I literally don't know. It's become automatic. When I play video games, I do get better at them, even though, and then sometimes I'm stupid. I'm supposed to know about this stuff, but I think, oh, I'm stuck here. What I'll do is I'll, I'll figure out what to do. I won't attend to anything else. Then I realize, wait a second, you're supposed to be an expert in memory, yet these are implicit tasks and you should be able to do them with, while doing other things. And of course it is, and you practice a little bit, you keep trying and trying and eventually you do it. And then once you do it once, you can do it forever. Oh, I can get out of that place. My son, off, I always often hear my son yelling that he's stuck in some part of a game and if it's a game I've played, I come in, I go, oh, it's just like this. And he's happy with that, he doesn't really care long as he gets his achievement, he's okay. So this is neat stuff, but it's implicit. So implicit memory is knowing without remembering. When I say remembering, I mean in the sense of the way it's used in popular politics. I don't mean the way we, because it clearly is remembering. But it's like, it's not like we put effort into it. And the first time this was documented was by a French physician named Claparède. Uh, sometime in the 1890s. And he had a, uh, a patient who had Korsakoff syndrome. Korsakoff syndrome uh, is something you get because you don't get enough vitamin B, but it's usually because you get all your calories from alcohol. So these are people who wake up in the morning and they've got their Fruit Loops, they put rye on it, or skulls of shoe polish or something. Like these are professional drinkers. So they're getting all their, uh, a lot of their calories from alcohol, so they don't have enough vitamin B, and they, it causes brain damage. And one of the things that affects is explicit memory. So people have trouble with episodic explicit memories that can't form new ones. They can learn, as you would not be surprised, implicit tasks. I had a student years ago here, uh, I believe I taught in this room, uh, intro psych, and she came up to me before, after the first class and said, I might have some trouble with this, I have Korsakoff syndrome. And I said, yeah, you might. I said, but you will learn things. You may just won't remember learning them. And these are multiple choice tests. So when you fill this out, when you fill out the tests, just go with what you feel seems like the right answer, because it's probably going to be it. If you pass the course, you great that you passed the course, which is wonderful. Um, so back to Clapparelli, he's got this patient with Korsakoff syndrome, and he comes into the room, and the patient, of course, being of having some manners, puts his hand up to shake hands. Clapparelli takes out and has a pin in his hand and pokes him with it. Ethics be damned. This is for science. This is poking people with any issue with pins for science. What are they going to do? They're not going to remember. <laughs> so he does this one day. Little pin prick, or little prick with a pin, you might say, because that's pretty neat. And the next day, that goes into the guy's, that's, he's, uh, that's Korsakoff syndrome, goes into his 
Boom. And Clefdale then puts his hand up to shake hands, and the guy's like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Hold on and shake your hand. He's like, well, why? Or why do you not want to shake my hand? That's my, because as we know, people in France, uh, they all speak with ridiculous French accents, but they speak English. So, I can't. I was like, I don't know. I just feel really uneasy putting my hand out to you. Have we ever met, sir? No, I've never met you in my life. I don't know who you are, but I'm not shaking your hand, man. Go away. I don't like you. I don't even know what accent that was. That was just a generic foreign person. I don't even know what that is. So the interesting thing is he doesn't remember meeting Monsieur le Docteur Clapperhead, but he does remember, which I remember it, which I implicitly remember, that something bad happens when you put your hand out to this guy. This guy just pokes you with pins. He doesn't remember that, he just remembers something bad. Huh. So that's the first documentation of this kind of thing. Um, so one of the things about implicit memory is it's dissociable from explicit memory. So what I mean by that is that, well, what we just saw, that implicit memories, like this guy is mean and he pokes you with a pin, that's implicit. The explicit part of actually knowing this guy does this and it's this guy here and I've met him before, they're dissociable by different variables. So in this case, Korsakoff syndrome, if you think about other things, um, uh, different kinds of brain damage, you will end up harming explicit memory, but not implicit memory. In fact, most amnesics show completely normal implicit memory. Think about HM. Right? HM didn't remember Brenda Miller. He never remembered Brenda Miller explicitly. But he could do mirror tracing the next day, even though he'd never remember having done it. And again, you understand how the word, way I'm using the word remember here. So the learning has an effect and it's uh, of mirror tracing in that case, and it is permanent or long-lasting, so it's memory. Yet there's no conscious recollection of it. Don't like the word conscious. But what else one of these? By the way, I don't like the word consciousness because I can't measure it. I can't define it, I can't measure it, so I don't like using the word, but you all know what I mean. So they'll show totally normal implicit memory. They can learn skills, they can learn things like mirror tracing, but they don't have any conscious recollection of it. So it's dissociable. There's a dissociation between implicit and explicit, which allows one to infer that they're served by separate neurological systems. I think that's pretty sensible. Okay, questions so far? So one of the ways you study this is through priming. Now, I've talked a little bit about this, uh, I think maybe in the second class, but the way priming works is that you get enhanced identification of previously seen but now degraded stimulus. That's wordy. I realize that's wordy. But if I've given you the word, Pauling always liked the word assassin in these papers. <coughs> I don't know why he liked it, but it's a great word. And You've seen that word before, and then I ask you to fill in a degraded version of it. You're more likely to fill this in with assassin if you've seen the word assassin before in like a study phase five minutes ago. And this is, by the way, this is true. This priming shows up and it's completely normal in people with amnesia, in, in, in neurological cases where people have amnesia. So you then ask these people, have you seen, do you remember seeing a list of words? And they're like, no. The interesting thing is somebody like KC would often say, if you say so, I believe you. 
because he had some metacognition. He was aware that his memory was screwed. I don't know that about HM. Um, I know it about KC because Tobin would talk about that kind of thing. Like in lab meetings and stuff. So one of the ways you test this is right here, word fragment completion. So you see what I'm saying? We have a perceptually degraded version of the stimulus. You could use stem completion. Stem completion is like this. So instead of blanks, you just do. And then people fill in. So it's not filling in individual letters, it's just at the end of the word. So it's, a, it's the stem. Stem and then the rest that are. By the way, Tolvik has no problem getting the word ass and then blank in print. When Brodbeck tries it, he gets told it's vulgar. And it's not like I call people, you know, and then this asshole. Like it's not, it's, it's, I use this actual example because I thought, oh, use Tolvik's example. An homage to the man. I'm citing him. And the editor of this journal is like, you can't do that. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll change it to something else. So I change it to chick for chickadee. So I thought, fine. I'll mention chickadees then. But I wanted to straight back and go, you know, Endel Tolving, and then I was like, well, I'm not Endel Tolving, so I'll just let it go. It's one of those things, when you get things back from a journal, they give you long lists of things to correct. And there are things that matter and things that don't matter. And what you do is you correct as many things as you can, and then you say, yeah, but I'm not doing that. But here's why. But I'm, it's not like, I'm not going to do that because you let other people do it, and you're being mean. is not really going to endear you to the journal editor. So it's like, yeah, I'll do that, sure. Fine, I changed that. Page three, I changed ass to chick. As requested. I'm, however, not changing the way I analyze my data. Like, those things like that. And then you go, oh, well, well, he was being reasonable here. I guess we'll say that's okay. Perceptual identification. So I can show you words very quickly, 20 to the second. Usually a 20th of a second, so 0.05 seconds. And I ask you what the word was. So if I've shown you assassin, and then I show you the word assassin very quickly, you're more likely to be able to read that. And it's either, it has to go bang, bang, go on, off. Okay? There used to be very um, expensive pieces of gear called tachistoscopes that did this. We can now do this with these expensive pieces of gear called computers. Uh, but it used to be, because you used to have to have something that didn't, like the light didn't fade at all. It had to just go out. You can do that with a computer. Used to be you did it with very with, with light bulbs and all kinds of shutters and things. It was very expensive equipment, and now it's just it's old museum stuff. But they still stick to the twentieth of a second. The best you could ever do was a twentieth of a second. It's very hard to do this if you haven't seen one before. Very hard. Um, you could do picture fragment completion. So you can show people besides pigeons, you can show people pictures, and you show them a picture of. This classroom, you got this. And then I show them a picture again, but I've blocked certain parts of it out. I've obscured parts of it. And I say, what's that a picture of? And they would say, you know, it's SH-400 memory class, whatever. More likely to fill that one in than if I show them a different picture, blocked out the same way with the same number of people, could even be the same people, but sitting in different places. So how would you do this in a, in a non-human? Well, it's kind of cool because one of the things that pigeons are very good at is, we talked about categorization the other day, is category, categories. You can, you can train them very easily that they're supposed to peck at pictures of cats and not peck at pictures of cars. Okay? So we have an S. We, they're, they're shown on two screens like this, or two parts of a touch screen. S plus, S pad, and S minus, car. Or as Dwayne would say, a car. So, they peck at this, they get food. Okay? If they peck at this, they get no food. However, if they don't peck at it, so you show it to them for about 30 seconds, if they don't peck at it, they get food. 
they have to learn to be tech at the S plus and don't tech at the S minus. You with me so far? These are just pictures, so we're just getting to the point. By the way, they can learn this very easily. In about, so say that's 40 trials a day, in about 15 days, they're better than 80%. And you show them unique pictures, ones they haven't seen before. That's how you test them, because they can just memorize every picture. I'm surprised how well pigeons can do a task like that. Uh, by the way, in an experiment like this, half of them, half a cat is S plus, and half of them a car is S plus. Experimental psychologists are nothing if not obsessed with methodology. Okay. Now, so that's the first phase. Now what do you do in the second phase? Instead of just showing them the two, one, the two things, now let's go, in, we'll have three parts of the screen. The first part of the screen is going to have a W. We're going to call it W. It's a warning stimulus. It's a picture of stuff around the lab. A chalk brush, a garbage can, a research assistant. Uh, you know, whatever was around. And then choice, S plus, or S minus, you're supposed to pick the S minus. And again, half the time the S plus is on the left, half the time it's on the right. And pseudo-randomly done. This is just saying that warning stimulus, meaning picture coming. They peck at that, and you get to peck at that maybe 20 times. And they learn that they have to do this to get to the part where they might get food. They, they get good at that pretty easily. It's not a big stretch point. We're still not at the part where we're doing any priming yet. Now it's going to get interesting because what we're going to do is we have, we're going to show them S plus one. That's a picture of, is, is that a cat? Is some cat as a warning stimulus. They peck at it 20 times and then they get a choice between S plus sub two and S minus sub one. This is another cat, or a tiger, or an ocelot, I don't know. And this is a Corvette. Now, in the final step, when they get these choices here, these pictures, But you know, block it out. But it's seen that cat on the previous trial as a warning stimulus. The question now is, are they better at categorizing when they've seen the picture before? understand the experiment. It's kind of, it takes a long time to get to where you're getting data, but you eventually get the information. And the answer is yes. They're about 5% better, yeah, about maybe 5% better at detecting the category. And this was also true when you use S minus as a stimulus. You can actually test it. It's not surprising that you could do this in a non-human. A lot of what non-human animals are doing is going to be, first of all, implicit memory. But the idea of priming, the idea of being able to recognize a perception of the brain and stimulus, that should show up, right? Because you have to detect, is that a predator over there in that tree? It shouldn't be, well, I can't see the whole thing. There's some leaves in the way. I don't know what it is. It'd be pretty sensible to be able to detect, or, or is that food? I'm not sure if it's food or not, because it's not a clear image. You should be able to learn to do that pretty quickly. All right, and if this was a paper you'd want to read, this was done by me a long time ago. Actually, I, I think this is the coolest thing I've ever done, but no way else It's got It's been cited like only 11 times or something. It's and I thought I was doing this really awesome But no one else thinks so. And then someone tried to do it in monkeys and it didn't work and now it felt horrible because this poor guy spent two years of his graduate training trying to do this and it didn't work. Every time I see this guy, Ben, I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. And now it turns out his wife is like 
really good friends with my daughter. So they'll be, by the way, tell Emily to tell Ben that I'm sorry. So we can do this in non-humans. And one of the cool things is the reason it was e easy to do or to conceptualize is because I don't have to worry about consciousness. A lot of times with doing memory stuff with non-humans, if you try to compare it to all the people, it's like, well, what about consciousness? Well, this is supposed to be unconscious. Yay. All right. So some characteristics of priming. Retention interval has little effect. I believe the Talbing Chakra and Starch article, I think I decided it. Um, but in their article, they had what? I think it was one hour, 24 hours, I think this is right, in seven days. And they had, they gave people lists of words, and then they did vision recognition or recall, it doesn't matter, some explicit memory task, and you get this. So for the explicit, not surprising, you get a forgetting curve. For the priming, it's like this. Flat. Come back a week later, and the priming still shows up. By the way, the same thing happens kind of with the pigeons. I was, the, the priming lasted about three minutes and pigeons don't remember things between trials for three minutes. It just doesn't happen. So. so, retention interval is another thing that dissociates implicit and explicit memory, right? Because the variable retention interval affects Explicit memory with a classic forgetting curve, it doesn't seem to affect implicit memory at all. Levels of processing has very little effect. Um, levels of processing is if I have you, as you read the list of words, I can have you do what's called deep processing. Deep processing is rate the words uh, on one to seven on their pleasantness, one being unpleasant, seven being. Because now you have to think about the meaning of the word. If I have you do a shallow processing, I just say count the number of ascending and descending letters. So uh, like, okay, so the word little, it's got one, two, three, four, oh, five. One, two, three, four, five ascendings. I just have to look at the words and see if it goes above or below the line. Right? So the dot and the I, the L, all this stuff. You know, key bits here go above the line. Now you're looking at the surface features. When I have you do that for explicit task, you do way better when you think about the meaning of the word. For an implicit task, doesn't matter. The effect is very, if there's an effect, it's exceedingly small. And in fact, for years, no one found any effects in this stuff. This priming stuff was really hot in the 80s. And people always said, levels of processing has no effect on priming. And then Brad Chalice and I, uh, looked at the data and we said, you know, no one finds a significant effect, but everyone's effect is in the same direction. There's always a very small effect there. So what we did is we, uh, well, this is him, this was me. I, I wrote some software that compared effect sizes, basically did a meta-analysis, and I didn't know how to do that with anybody else's software, so I just wrote my own, because why not, and ran all these effects through, and it turned out that there is an effect there. It's exceedingly small. However, if you make people, if you change the way they do the task, so usually you do blocks, right? So you present words and you say, for these, I want you to count from uh, the number of ascenders and descenders for the next 10. They do it. And then for the next 10, I want you to rate the pleasantness. On the other hand, if I give you a cue and say pleasantness or ascenders before each word, now the levels of processing effect shows up. So it's, there's something about the way it's done. The 
setting matters. Because you're thinking, wait a second, I've seen the word assassin written out enough times that that one extra time shouldn't do anything. No, it's that one extra time in that same font written on a computer screen or a piece of paper or whatever. You change the size of the word, you change the color, all these things. Because it's, it's almost like it's a perceptual phenomenon. It's very basic. So it's stochastically independent of explicit memory. What that means is that remembering the word assassin explicitly has no effect, is no, has no relationship between uh, with do you complete the fragment or not for assassin. The correlation, the, pro the correlation between the probability of, of, of explicitly remembering something and implicitly remembering something is zero. They're independent of each other. This again shows that we're talking about independent memory systems. Right? Does that make sense? That's an important characteristic of this, this independent thing. Okay. Questions? athletic or motor things. The things that we call, quote, muscle memory aren't about muscle memory, they're procedural memory. Right? The fact that you can just type your password in to a computer and you, it's, it's a, I hope your password isn't password one, two, three, or something like that. But your password is some crazy Um, I better change that. <laughs> no, mine's password one, two, three, four, exclamation point. <laughs> Actually, if you're smart, don't know any passwords, know one password of a password manager. Right? I have a password manager, and I don't know my passwords to almost anything. But I know a password that is that long that opens my password manager. It's Glenn's last pass. And it's a sent, yeah, you do the same thing? And mine's just, a, it's, a, it's a sentence with punctuation and capitals and numbers and all kinds of great stuff. So you'll have to change your password. Um, so then you have to reuse passwords that you don't do that in any way. Because somebody cracks one, then they thought all of them. And LastPass can change from automatic. Yeah, it's beautiful. LastPass, and it's free. Yeah, LastPass, one password. Or even the, the one on uh, Keychain and iOS and uh, Mac OS X if you're using that, if you're living in the Apple world. I use both. Sometimes they get confused and they, get, they uh, argue with each other. It's very annoying. But when you do that, you type things in. It's like, oh, I, you know. You don't have to actually think about the password. It just happens with your fingers. People can learn artificial grammars. This is like teaching a fake language to someone. So what you're doing is we know that sentences have to have nouns and verbs. So what you do is you take symbols and you have people generate strings of symbols. And all you do is say, that's wrong. Oh, no, that was right. No, that's wrong. And you don't tell them what any of the symbols mean, but they learn the rules. The same way we learn languages, right? We learn languages typically as kids when we're little. We learn them implicitly. No one sits you down. Yeah, it happens a little bit where you, your kid asks, what's that? And you tell him or her what it is. But you don't, they don't learn things like nouns and verbs go together. You don't have to teach them that. That just happens. So you can actually teach people artificial grammars. And they don't know how they've learned it. They can't explain to you why the triangle always goes with a picture of a chair or a picture of a moose or a picture of a light bulb or two wavy lines, but it does. Because one's a noun, one's a verb, it's that kind of rule. And then you can throw in ad quote, quote, adjectives and adverbs and the whole thing. And people can end up making these things and they go, I don't know what this means, but I know this is correct. They've internalized 
a quote grammar, but they've actually, um, they, they can't tell you having learned it. But they get them right. It's like, again, when you learn a foreign language, uh, if you learn a language, English is great because it has no gender, right? When you learn a gendered language that has masculine and feminine, like, like French, it's weird because there really aren't any whole, whole lot of rules as to why something's masculine or feminine. They just are. But sometimes you look at a word and go, that's got to be, that shouldn't be le, that's la. And it just feels right. And you're almost always right when you speak French. Correlated events, in other words, just two events going together. Right? I talked about the idea of president, that, that, that experiment that I did with president and resident and all that stuff. It's also the case with associative learning. Um, you get people to, you in essence put them in a Skinner box. You don't really put them in a box. You present them in front of a computer screen. And when they do, when they hit the right keystroke that you want them to hit, they, they get a little beep. And people will work for a little beep. People will. We, we know that. And eventually they learn the keystroke. And eventually they can tell you what the keystroke's supposed to be. It's like, oh yeah, X, J, spacebar. But you ask them after every trial, What's, what did you do right? They can't actually tell you what they did right when they're already doing it right. So they have learned it implicitly first, which is very cool. Think about abstract concepts. Um, it's kind of like the artificial grammar thing. So you teach people that teaching what belongs to an S plus and what belongs to an S minus, but you don't use cars and cats. You use geometric shapes. You can use things that people probably don't even notice. Like you make one shape with one kind of equation and one shape with another sort of equation, and people will be able to do this. Yet they can't actually tell you, they don't know anything about fractals, but they can tell you that that's an S plus and that's an S minus. It's pretty neat. Sequences of events. So things like digit span or this, 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 this. We all have, we all know the alphabet in order. Think about, I mean, and then think about this practically. When you all learn, probably everybody else here except me knows how to drive a car. When you first learned to drive, you had to learn sit down, put on seatbelt, turn on ignition, check your blind spot. I don't know what any of these things are. I've heard people say these things. I'm serious. I, Blind spot for me, first of all, is everywhere. I find the term blind spot offensive. I really don't. I find the term blind rivers offensive. Uh, again, I kid. Um, though every time we drive through it, I always say this is offensive. Um, well, anyway, When you learn to drive first, it's a series of events, right? It's like, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. And you can't be talking. Nobody talk. Don't turn on the radio. Don't put any music on. And after a while, it's, you do all those things, but you don't think about them anymore. Right? They just happen. And now you're able to have the, have music blaring and be driving on the 401, 130 kilometers an hour, and looking over at the other person as you talk to them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or my dad was able to drive, like, oh, yeah, 140. And this is when I was a kid, you know, smoke. I play fight with us in the back seat. I'm amazed we lived. I, it's a different time. Of course, we didn't have seatbelts on, because those were an option in the back seats. Ah, children, we can make new ones. So a lot of things we learn implicitly. We do a lot of problem solving implicitly. And I know a lot of you guys have taken cognition with Laurier. Um, we have a start state and a goal state. And sometimes problems are very well defined. Like, well, math problem. Right? Very formal kind of logic problems like, uh, I don't know, all of Euclidean geometry. Remember doing that? Like you'd say, this and this angle must equal this by this theorem. I loved doing that in high school. It was my favorite thing in math until I ran into proving identities. Remember doing that? I loved that too. Because it was like, it's a logic puzzle. This is fun. It's a puzzle. It's got an end state. But then there's things with a fuzzy end state, like what am I going to make for dinner? Right? 
and it depends on your memory and your ability and things you've learned implicitly, right? Like you know that this goes with this. You know certain things aren't for dinner. You don't go, like if my family came home and said, what's for dinner? I don't say, uh, I don't know, how about cereal? I, I, I think it'd be a revolt. If I'm not home by like four o'clock, I, I start getting text messages from my son. You aren't here yet. What's for dinner? <laughs> and that is, there's there's an implicit thing there. It's like, um, actually, that's usually when he starts dropping hints to Isabel, like, you know, we could order a pizza. I had KFC in a while. He starts just saying things like that, and he thinks he's being so. <laughs> because of the autism, he thinks he's being so clever. And it's like, you are an open book, son. <laughs> and the title is Manipulation. Um, so we have heuristics and algorithms. This, again, just speaks to passwords. We, when we crack passwords, when people crack passwords, I have never done that. Uh, there is a, there's an algorithm that'll work. Try every possible combination of all letters. It might take a while. Right? It'll work. Or you, you learn and you remember a heuristic. Right? So some kind of rule that will usually work. So password cracking software, which I may have, um, has the ability to, if there are certain heuristics, there are things called weak keys. And you say, oh, there's a weak key there. And it, it, you can look it up because you want to. Or you can use classic social engineering approach. I, had a, I cracked a friend's password once who worked here, doesn't work here anymore, but he said, can you, because I often act as an unpaid computer support person, and this person said, oh, can you um, come down here? I just want to check, so I, I can't print. I said, oh, you probably just have to, and I, I forget what the hell it was. So I sit down at his computer, and he said, you'll have to log in. I said, oh, yeah, you're, he said, he said, my, I said don't tell me your password, don't do that, um, but I bet I can I know your password. He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a Montreal Canadiens fan. Your third favorite player of all time is Guy Carbonneau. Your password is Hatch21. Yeah. And I typed it in. He said, how did you do that? I said, because, because you don't know anything about computers or security, and you would use something you could remember and have, and you think you're being clever because there's a number in it. And it worked. I mean, I said, please, don't tell me you're using this for your banking, right? Go change all your passwords. A lot of these things we do learn implicitly. So the, the heuristic there of sort of what's called social engineering, that's something I learned explicitly. But a lot of the sort of heuristics that you have, you've learned implicitly. When you make the decision, oh, the, I missed the bus. Right? You're standing at the bus stop and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. At some point, you go, I must have missed it. Because you've learned over time that the bus is never more than eight, let's say eight minutes late. I don't So that's all memory stuff, too, all the problem stuff. Super memory! I just like saying it that way. What if you can improve memory? But you can't. Think of like a skill, you practice. So it's like, it's like juggling. Like you get better at it. And the way you practice it is you actually just memorize things. Oh my god, maybe it's a horrible health problem. Or maybe it's just your printers on the fritz. On the fritz. What am I from? 1940? Yeah, printers on the fritz. So, if you do this as a skill, you actually can practice memory and get better at it. Think about this. Okay, here, here's a question. Anybody here take a year off? Yeah, a lot of you guys, right? When you came back to school, studying hard for a bit. But then, you got back into it pretty easily. Math. Anybody here not take anything quote even remotely mathematical till they hit till still they hit their stats class, right? A lot of people like that, right? And you're thinking, oh, I can't do this anymore. Well, it comes back to you. And you practice, you get, get better at it. Same kind of thing. It is just a skill. Are there physical limitations on it? Oh, sure. 
right? But it is really just a skill, and it's learning how to, it's learning how to learn. And that's what I talked when I mentioned studying. One of the things you learn usually implicitly is how to pick out what's important. One of the most important things that you skills you ever get in university is sometime, hopefully in first year, you figure out what the important stuff is to write down. And you learn how to take notes. Right? And you see some, some you probably new people in, in first year, and you look uh, and you look at their notes, and they're literally almost writing down everything the prof's saying. It's like, oh no, he was making one point, he was saying it four different ways so people could write it down. So memory is just a skill. To a point. So here's a guy who's this guy is named Rajan, and he's very famous for memorizing the digits of pi. I think I'm very sure Rajan compared Now, there is something special about this guy, because when he first did, he first found this out when he was, I think, like eight years old. He was at a party, like a birthday party, and he wasn't having a good time. So he comes back in and he goes, hey, mommy, daddy. And he just reads. And of course, they go check and he's right. So that's kind of cool to begin with. Cool in a weird way, but cool. Right? I used to know all the flags in every country in the world. It was the thing I knew when I was about nine. Because it interested me. And I would just read an atlas over and then it became a, a, a little parlor game. My, my parents had people over. My, my dad would say, yeah, I bet you 10 bucks my, my kid can name the flag of any country. Honduras. Uh, blue stripe, white stripe, blue stripe, five star. That's me. That was me younger. That was the impression I was going to make. Let me know. Where's Honduras? That was my dad. So he's a great example because eventually he's got, he's, he can do pi uh, 31,900 digits. He just knows them. And it's not like he's doing the math in his head, you know, because that's not a thing. What he's doing is he's actually memorized the digits of pi. And the way he's done this is he's, he's put it in Because when you look at the, when he make, if, if he makes an error, he knows this, by the way. He's a, a, a psychology prof in Tennessee. Okay, so he eventually turned this, his interest in, in this into a, uh, he's also an engineer, but he's turned his interest in, in this into a career, which is pretty cool. So he knows that when he makes mistakes, it's at a certain part of a given chunk. And he's looked at tables of pi that, have, that are, go 10, 10, 10, like 10 digits in a row. So he knows that like he's if he remembers the first part, he's going to remember the rest of it. Okay. It's, it's, he's mem memorizing bigger units. Chess experts are great because um, what they're remembering, or sorry, what they're, the difference between like a grandmaster chess player, Gary Kasparov level chess player, and just a master, somebody who's pretty good, world-ranked, but they're not going to win world championships, isn't that they're thinking more moves ahead. They aren't. What they're doing is, what people talk about in sports as well, they're seeing the board. So what they're doing is they can memorize positions of chess pieces. They don't know that they're doing this, by the way. No one's taught them. They haven't been told... The way to become a good chess player is just memorize positions of chess pieces. Because, in fact, if you take one of the pieces and put it in a place where it can't be, they're no better than you or I. But when the chess pieces are in places where they would actually, could actually be, they're better than anybody, including really good chess players. I suspect that professional athletes are like this. You always hear about people being able to see the ice better or see the floor better. Situational awareness, that kind of thing. You always hear those kind of things being talked about in, in people who play sports. And I, 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 I'm convinced 
that if I showed a professional hockey player where players were on, an on the ice and then had them, is, this, is it this one, this one, or this one, they'd get it right more often than any of us would who probably watched as much hockey as they had. Um, however, I bet if you put seven guys in one uniform and three in another, which is impossible, they, they, they wouldn't do any better than any of us. Right. Sometimes you can see that with great players, they'll do things that are, and the best example ever I, I saw was Mario Lemieux standing in the corner pointing to players where to stand during a power play and telling guys where to pass the puck. It was like he was using a controller. He was standing at the red line, like at the goal line, beside the net, and he was doing this, pointing with his stick. Never seen anybody do that. So it's the coolest thing. So I think it's a lot of this. This is about chunking again. They can remember bigger chunks, these chess experts. So it's all about chunking, be it remembering a zillion digits of pi, remembering chess pieces. I think playing video games a lot of times is like that, knowing that stuff's going on all over the screen. doing this stuff. That all sounds great. I've got an Oh, they're chunking. Yeah, but how are they doing this at this kind of level? Um, they probably put information into long-term memory more quickly than you and I do. But they're very specific domains. Right? They probably have better retrieval techniques. So when you ask Rahan or Rajan or hey, Rajan, what's the 432nd digit of pi, he can go to that, that line of, that he's memorized and tell you which one it is. Because he is remembering things as chunks, not as individual digits. And that gets faster with practice. And you, again, if you did take some time off from school, you probably found out for the first couple of weeks, it took a little longer to, to study. It took a little longer to have things sort of sink in, if you want to say that, uh, during class. And now it doesn't anymore because now you're back at it. By the way, Rajan, it's got to be Rajan. Rajan has a digit span that's ridiculous, right? Um, your and the way you test digit span is, the best way is backward digit span. So I read you a list of numbers, and then you read them back to me backwards. And the average person's like five. And he's like pushing 20. So he has, there's something special about that guy. It's not just that he practices, right? There's something really cool about what he can do. So a lot of this is about practice. So at the, the, you're going to get better at procedural memory, implicit memory, by practicing. But you're not going to notice that you're better until you sort of test yourself. Right? So again, the video game example, I like that because you typically, you don't, the way you're always testing yourself every time you're trying that level again. That's how you're testing yourself. Um, on the other hand, when you're doing like writing, Knowing how to write an academic paper is a skill that anyone can learn. It really is. But it takes practice. Knowing how words should be put into a sentence is a, is a skill. And then people often ask me, how do you get better at writing? And I say, write. Read and write. So read academic papers and write them. And you think, oh, I'm not an academic paper every day. But what if you write something every day? Write a thousand words, five hundred words. Doesn't have to take much. It doesn't have to be anything. In fact, I think it's actually better if it's not some emotional thing you're telling your guide about. I think it's better if you write out how to make a pot of coffee. How did I choose what clothes I would wear today? Right? You 
practice doing that, you actually get better at it, and it's completely implicit. You have no idea how you're getting better, but you'll find you're getting better. And the great thing is you can go back and read the old things you've written and read the new stuff and go, God, it was garbage. Right? And those of you who have taken like, all phases of stats, you know that what happens at the beginning of that course for most people, they're personal, they're frightened, but also you don't do very well at the beginning. It's the way it is. And then one day, it all just made sense. And you go back and you look at your quizzes, the first couple of quizzes you wrote, and go, apparently I was quite stupid. Right? I remember when this, this happened in, for me, in a, I was really afraid of stats. And in grade 13, because I'm old, so grade 13, um, I took this algebra course and it had a statistics and probability section, and I failed that part. 46 on the test. And it was out of 100, so 46%. And then I got to this in second year of university. It's like, oh, statistics. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. I'm not very good at this. This is going to be a problem. And I did a couple of homework problems, and I went, oh, oh, that's how you do this. And it was, it was done. It was just practice. And then I remember going back and looking at my tests from high school going, was I stupid? And it's simply practice. It's simply practice. Right? So it's implicit stuff. And because it's implicit, sometimes we don't notice the effects of, 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 of the practice, right? One of the cool things about implicit memory and procedural memory is these things are often retained even after an injury or some kind of insult to the brain. And the ability to learn new things implicitly is, is usually So it shows us that this is a separate system. It's probably evolutionarily much older than explicit types of memory. Right? Because one of the things that, I mean, associating events is an implicit thing in every single animal ever tested shows associative learning, down to nematodes that have two males. Questions?
listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da- uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures in algoma university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh- uh, um, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um you feel free to share them uh and feel free to match them up any way you want but if you do that that means i get to do the same thing with your stuff Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>